Welcome to the 25th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast and our first episode in isolation. Today we will be keeping our social distance via Zoom so the quality of the audio is at true streaming quality. Here at Known Pleasures we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. If you like the music featured in this podcast, feel free to click on the link and you will be magically transported to a Spotify playlist made just for this episode. And speaking of Spotify, you can now find us on that particular platform and you can also find us on Twitter at Pleasures Known. Now, I believe that it's my turn to reveal the subject of today's podcast. Tears for Fears were a new wave synth duo from Bath in the English county of Somerset. Their mostly electronic debut album hit the top of the charts in 1983 and contained some classic singles that were highly regarded at the time and are still heard around the world today. Now, if the Tears for Fears story ended there, we would gladly induct them into our own fictional post-punk hall of fame, no hesitation. But in 1985... They went out to rule the world with well-crafted, hook-laden pop songs that American Top 40 Radio fell head over heels for, and MTV heralded them as one of the bands at the forefront of the second British invasion. Now, the question is, after that first album, do Tears for Fears qualify as a new wave band? And indeed, does it really matter? This is where Mark, Patrick and I shout, shout and let it all out as we discuss the music of Roland Orzabel and Kurt Smith. AKA Tears for Fears. You've stolen our thunder a little bit there, Graham, because I thought a pretty exciting and innovative place to start the podcast would be in Bath in Somerset. Well, I'm happy with that. Well, I'm not sure how much there is to say about Bath in Somerset. It's a I think a world heritage site of a city. It's absolutely beautiful. A lot of lovely buildings, museums. Roman baths. There are baths, yes. Hence the name. It's quite a middle-class kind of city, as you can probably tell by the accents of Roland and Kurt, if you ever hear them interviewed. They're quite sort of, they speak quite properly. <laughs> but uh, yes, they were both raised in Bath, Roland Jaime Orzabal de la Quintana. His father was of Spanish Basque descent, and he was born in Portsmouth, but both he and Kurt raised in Bath. We've probably all come across the stories of how they met each other when they were 13 or 14 years old. Well, for those of us that don't know, and that may be some listeners, Patrick. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Go they, ahead and enlighten yeah, us. Um, <laughs> there's a great little story on the documentary scenes from the big chair where they describe separately their meeting. And Kurt said, I thought Roland was a French exchange student. And Roland said his name was Kurt, short guy, very Indian looking. <laughs> he wasn't allowed out that day because he'd previously been in a fight. And then Kurt says, he thought I was Indian looking apparently, which is probably something to do with the turban I was wearing at the time. <laughs> so anything you've ever heard about Tears for Fears lacking a sense of humour. <laughs> it's not true at all. Out the window as early as three years after their debut album. So they both played in a number of bands, one of whom was the unpromisingly named Ducks with a Z on the end. I don't know what kind of music Ducks from Bath played. (laughs) 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 You you would think possibly... I thought they were in um, a metal band together. I thought they met uh, when uh, one one heard the other singing a... uh... A, a heavy metal song. I'll tell you what it was. It was a Blue Oyster Cult song called Then Came the Last Day of May. Each one with the money in his pocket Go out and buy himself a brand new 
my knowledge of metal is limited, I'll be yeah. honest with you. Uh, and apparently he was quite impressed with Kurt's rendition ah. of the Blue Oyster Cult track. You may want to kind of steer the conversation in a slightly different direction, but uh, at the age of 17, they formed a ska band or arguably a mod band called Graduate. Yes, I would say a mod band because if you listen to the Graduate album, uh, there's like one, maybe two ska songs. Ah, okay. But a lot of it's like the new wave power pop of the day. I always call my I would agree with that. I think it's a strange thing to do from where they were standing to go and form a kind of ska mod band. I guess it was 78 people were doing that at the time. Madness and the specials, I think their debut albums were 79. So maybe yep. that's what people were doing. I mean, if you ever get a chance to see the, the videos, there's three tracks out there on YouTube of them playing live on Spanish television. It's pretty mm. entertaining yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, they had a hit in Spain. Was, I think it was number one in Spain, which is a bizarre thing that the Spanish were getting on the, the mod scar bandwagon. <laughs> <late> <laughs> yeah, in the day. yeah. Well, they'd already had a strange journey because they initially signed a publishing deal with Tony Hatch. And Tony Hatch is known for a couple of particular songs. One is Downtown. Oh, yes. Uh, and he also wrote the theme from Neighbours. <laughs> So this is the guy who signed Graduate up to a publishing deal. And then they yeah, had that Pete in Spain with Elvis should play Scar. And I think it was Elvis Costello that it was referring to. Yes, mm. yes it was. Um, and it was quite odd in a way. Scar was, I think, when did their first album come out? 1980? 1980 it was, yeah. Uh, Roland said that we'd been in this mod band called Graduate, but Gary Newman had shocked us out of all that. He was getting number ones to wearing black eyeliner and there we were doing knees ups to madness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can I just interject here and say that out of all the podcasts that we've done so far, um, this is the first band that we've spoken about that are actually my age. And um, ah. when I was researching this, like I was recognising a lot of what these guys were going through, sort of 79 to 82. Like they started a ska band, they played new wave power pop, they were changing haircuts and clothes and stuff. And they were searching for a, like a sound and a style, which I, I remember doing that myself. I don't think I ever landed yeah. on anything, but... It's never too late. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm still searching. Um, it wasn't out of the question to be in a Susie the Banshee-style band, then becoming XTC, then all of a sudden becoming orchestral manoeuvres in the dark via yeah, madness. Yeah. As you know, there were, there were so many avenues to go down and everything was moving really quickly at the time. And when synths came onto the market, you know, I bought my first synth and wanted to be John Fox or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, um, Mark, when I first met you guys and your band, I went to see your keyboard player Colin and he um, played me some songs he did by himself with um, keyboards. Well, that's the first time hearing of it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what year was this, Graham? Oh, I'd say this was 82, 83, about that. Mm. Well, Colin and I will be having words about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, <laughs> he was... Right. Uh, that's but how like, it was. <laughs> uh, cor correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but he had uh, two keyboards, uh, a sequencer and a drum machine. Yeah, he did. He, he had a lot of kit. Yeah, and he played me some stuff that he'd written and recorded himself. And I remember thinking, this this is amazing. You don't need a band anymore. And That's what he was obviously thinking too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was out the door. <laughs> yeah, he'd worked that out already. 
But I was reading how uh, Kurt and Roland thought the same thing at the time. I think they were mm. a bit frustrated with Graduate. They left them. They didn't want to tour anymore. Well, they didn't want to go down the route of having to play live all the time, which the other members of the band decided mm. was the way to be successful, play live a lot. And these two mm. decided that they wanted to make these beautifully crafted records in a studio and not play live very much, which was very of the time um, mm. to decide to do that, especially if you're going to be a synth duo. But I still think it's a strange turn to go from that kind of music, and I'm sure you'll feature a little bit of it too, mm. the first two demos that Tears for Fears recorded, which was literally mm. only a few months after they left Graduate, I believe, in, mm. um, in 81, if I'm not mistaken. But it was a thing at the time. This mm. is what I was saying. This is why I, I really recognise it, because um, it is an unusual jump to go from Scar to doing this electronic music. But yeah. all of these instruments were becoming available and all of these opportunities were becoming available. And, yeah. and I think that's what they, they saw. Well, Roland obviously wrote most of the songs in Graduate and sang the songs that I saw them doing, so he was the lead singer. So he obviously decided yeah. he could take his songwriting and singing abilities to a different area. And he and Kurt obviously clicked over the other members of the band. I've seen references to where they say uh, Remain in Light, Talking Heads was a big influence on them. Gary Newman, as Patrick mm. mentioned and Peter Gabriel's third album. So they were mm. having their eyes and ears opened to what was happening and Scary Monsters by Bowie uh, to what else yeah. could be done. So it just it's just a strange, not a strange yeah, change, yeah, but it's yeah. certainly a bit of a left turn and almost like they realised that, that that game was up and that something else was was a foot. A foot. Uh, which, yeah, which is why they obviously left and went out with the two of them. But as I said, they quickly kind of changed tack, recorded these couple of demos which are light years away from what Graduate were doing and, and reasonably quickly were signed as far as I can tell. Yeah, that, weren't they signed for those two songs? Mm, for I think so. Suffer so. the Children and Pale Shelter. And Pale Shelter, the two yeah. Demos yeah, of, yeah. Is that right? I think we've got a demo of Suffer the Children but I haven't been able to find the other one. They became mates with a fellow called Ian Stanley, I think, who was actually a synthesiser player. Mm. Um, and I think that really helped them. Yeah, absolutely. Because Roland was a like a, a guitar strumming, you know, kind of guy. Mm. And you know, I think I think he and Kurt sort of slowly had to get their head around synthesizers and the options that were open to them. And at that time, there was an avalanche of those kinds of two-piece bands, you know, from Soft Cell to to Wham to Blamange to whoever. So it was definitely you know something that was in the air. At the time, so it kind of made sense with the newfound cheaper synthesizers and you know, all that sort of stuff. I think they were a bit jaded by touring. You know, they were already you know over it before they'd even had a hit. So, should we talk about the first single, "Suffer the Children"? Yep. It was produced by David Lord, I think, wasn't it? Yep. Who did Peter Gabriel's uh, fourth album and also produced the Corgis, <laughs> if you remember yeah, them? Yeah. Ah, yes. Everybody's got to learn sometime. Sometimes, which is, yeah. Which is a great track. Everybody's got to learn sometime. Yeah, and in 2015, he was convicted of keeping a brothel. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> which, yeah, which is... Um, Hang on, what's keeping a brothel? Is that actually owning it or just frequenting the brothel? Well, it's, no, no, it's, it's not letting other people share in your brothel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... you're, not, you're not taking on customers. You're just basically, it's yeah. an exclusive thing, which is really, really selfish and illegal. Yeah, it was the hoarding of the brothel that was the problem. <laughs> If you're going to own a brothel, <laughs> let others come and share it. That's that's my always been my philosophy. Well, that's that's a good business yeah. model, I think. So yes, yeah. <laughs> so, all for so That was David Lord. I'm glad. I'm glad we. I'm glad you mentioned him. Yes. <laughs> 
so uh, what do you think of the first single compared to the album version of the song? It's fairly similar. It's similar, but is that the one that has an alternate Kurt Smith vocal melody at the beginning? Is, is that the one? There's like a backing vocal at the beginning, which reminds me of um, Dreamer by Supertramp. And it kind of makes the song a little bit convoluted. I can see why they left that out in the album version because the album is such a clean, clear album. And this was even fractionally not quite psychedelic, but had like a little bit of a 60s kind of vibe to me. What year are we talking about for the first single? November 81. 81, okay. Mm. Yeah, look, um, I don't know. There's a little bit of difference between them, but I thought, well, it wasn't particularly a hit. I know that much. So I didn't mm. really get that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the second single, if we can talk about that, yes. Hail Shelter, yep. Yep. Uh, which was also produced by a different fellow than the album version, um, yes, Mike yeah. Howlett. For your friend. Yes, one of I our love heroes. Him. Love his work. Good, good bloke. Just to put that into perspective, the year that he did Hail Shelter for Tears for Fears in 1982, mm. he worked on Gang of Four, Songs of the Free. He worked on Blamange's... Happy Families, Flock of Seagulls, and Hunters and Collectors Payload EP. So he was a busy, busy man. That busy year. man. <laughs> yeah. And he was yeah, doing yeah. Some, some pretty quality stuff. The Hunters EP in particular is fantastic. And look, Flock of Seagulls is, was good for the time, what he was doing. And Gang of Four's album, Songs of the Free, is yeah. the third album. Yeah. It's a fantastic album as well. Yeah, I don't actually mind his version of this track, but the band apparently weren't happy with with either of these producers. They didn't like the uh, the Lynn drums. So the drums on the Mike Hallett version are a bit more like the kind of classic gated reverb, you know, like the big Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins kind of artificial mm. sounding thing, which does make it sound a little bit clunky and kind of very much of its time. In a yes. way that, that I think there's something a little bit more timeless about the album version. I think the album so, version is just a bit more seamless with the rest of the album, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. So should we talk about the album now? Well, Mad World predated it. All around me faces. Did it? So, really? yeah, Mad, Mad World was September 82, which was six months before the album. But that was produced by the uh, album producer, so that's the same yeah. version that you're used to that we know. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Chris Hughes being his name, yes? Yes. The thing I love about Chris Hughes is what's on his CV. Yes. (laughs) Go on. You want to take it away, Graham? The band he played in prior to working with Tears for Fears. Well, actually, just before then, it was Dalek, I Love You, but wasn't he Merrick in Adam and the Ants? He was. He was the drummer in Adam and the Ants on some of their biggest hits. Yeah, so the Ant rap, the Marco Merrick, Terry Lee, Gary Tibson, yours truly, from the naughty north to the sexy south, etc. <laughs> I, I just love the fact that Paddy knows the words to the ant rap. So that is an excellent song, and I, and I won't hear a word against it. Well, he also worked on Kings of the Wild Frontier, which was their big breakout album, which was a fantastic album to give him his due. His due, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Ant yeah. rap is a bit of a novelty song, and maybe not quite up there in the, the uh, annals of ant music. <laughs> No, 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 that's right. And I do quite like the fact that Gary Tibbs is also name-checked in that ant rap list 
And Gary Tibbs was playing bass in Roxy Music around about and, that time as And well. the Vibrators prior to that, okay. another sort of seminal punk band. So he, he, yeah, he could yeah, turn yeah. his hand to anything. He could be a vibrator, he yeah. could be in Roxy Music. <laughs> he could be an ant. He could be an ant. So <laughs> that guy could do anything. Yeah, that's right. But I do like the idea of uh, Tears for Fears and <laughs> Roxy Music featuring in ant rap. <laughs> All right, so Mad World predates Mad World, the yeah. album. Um, mm. Also... Well, that was a hit for them, wasn't it? I think they had the first two misfires and then all of a sudden they, they ended up... Um... Well, that was the first I heard of them was Mad World. What about you guys? Yeah, which was a, yeah, a yeah, top, absolutely. Top, yeah, yeah. top five hit in the UK. Um, yeah, right. I just wanted to go out on a limb and say I remember hearing Mad World in a nightclub that I used to frequent. It was a floor filler, and I don't think you can say ah. that too often about Tears for Fears. When that no. track came on, all the new romantics, all the goth girls and boys would get on the dance floor, and it's not the most danceable song, but I tell you what. It's actually quite a sad song. It is a sad mm. song. Nothing yes. wrong with sad, but it doesn't have a dance beat especially. But, it, yeah, people would dance the night away to Mad World. And Mad World actually achieved uh, success for a second time about 20 years after its release. Mm. It was... Um, covered by Michael Andrews and Gary Jules for the Donnie Darko soundtrack. And uh, if you hear this, it's just gorgeous. It's um, just the voice, a piano, and uh, some cello. It's, just, it's a very minimal production, but really nice. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces. It was a much more restrained delivery in the uh, Tears for Fears vocal. Uh, Kurt was singing that one as opposed to, um, I think Roland sang the first two singles prior to that. If I'm not wrong, I could be wrong. I remember reading that uh, Kurt said, if it's a softer song, it's normally him that sings it. If the song requires to be belted out, it's Roland who sings it. Because he said his voice is darker, a lot more melancholic, and Roland is more of a shouter. Yes, he, he, he is a shouter, yeah. Um, so, yes. Well, Roland, well Ro, Roland did say that um, he'd heard Girls on Film, the Duran Duran song, and thought, I'm going to have a crack at something like that. Yes, well, I, could write a, I could write a song like that. Well, if I was trying to write Girls on Film, I wouldn't end up writing Mad World. <laughs> it's What's just as well it? you didn't have a go at it then. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were already making a splash, and in Smash Hits end of year poll, they interviewed all the pop stars about their best and worst records of 1982. And Simon Le Bon voted for Mad World as his best single for 1982. And his most annoying single of 1982 was Hello, John Got New Motor. That was a great song. By Alexi Sale. And which just goes to show that in 1982, even the worst songs were fantastic. <laughs> yes, and absolutely. It, it also goes to show that the vibe about the band was already out there on the streets and on the yachts. So <laughs> it was already happening for them. Well, that covers From Sea to Shining Sea. That's fantastic. I'd just like to throw in Roland's quote here at this point about the album, that what they were trying to do was a cross between Joy Division and the Human League's Dare album in terms ah, of sound yeah. and sensibility. So if you read a description of that, that would be something you'd be interested in, the cross between Joy Division and Dare. <laughs> Love action will tear us apart. I think that they probably <laughs> achieved that. It's not depressing like Joy Division, but it's sort of melancholy. Oh, it's pretty sad. I mean, we have to talk about the whole philosophy behind Oh, yeah, should, should we go down that, that road? That was another thing. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. wanted to actually say it, it's a strange left turn from saying Elvis should play Scar yeah. to talking about 
primal scream therapy and making that the cornerstone of your band's sound <laughs> name and first album. So it's, it's a big jump, mm. Graham. I know what you're getting at, but that's like, you know what? Forget about Elvis should play Scar. Let's talk about... Let's stop telling pop stars what they should play. <laughs> Let's talk about children. Exactly. Who are already successful. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, Elvis Costello produced the first specials album. So, you know, don't tell him he should be playing Scar. That's right. He was producing the stuff. <laughs> Although they did hate his production of the album, as the, I recall. The specials but... did or Tears for Fears did? Uh, the Tears for Fears hated <laughs> his production of the specials album. <laughs> That's, that's well recorded. I'm surprised you're even asking that question. Oh, look, I, that's for our listeners, Patrick. I know that. <laughs> no, for what it's worth, the specials didn't like, apparently, um, Elvis Costello's production well, of their first album. They thought it was a bit tinny and thin. But anyway. Well, that's, that's for another podcast. We're, yeah, we're getting off, off topic here, but I just wanted to say that um, I think Elvis Costello also admits to the <laughs> fact that he pretty much just went in there and pressed record and the band played. I don't uh, think there was okay, a yeah, great yeah. deal of production there. However, I like the first Specials album. Yeah, yeah, so do, so do that, I. That's the tears for fear. Tell us your favourite half dozen tracks on the Specials first album. <laughs> They're from Coventry, aren't they? How did they get together? <laughs> Which is near Bath. We can course, slowly Coventry. segue into our um, Specials podcast, if you like. <laughs> In fact, let's abandon the Tears for Fears podcast. We can come back to that another day. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay. Um, yes. Arthur Janoff. Wasn't that the yes. chap's name? Yes. yes. Who, who, uh, yes. The American, what, psychotherapist or psychologist? Mm. And it, it struck a chord with both boys, this mm. um, this idea anyway. I don't, I don't really even know how to explain it, to be honest, but they both saw yeah. themselves as having pretty poor childhoods of, of neglect and not being sort of um, loved by their parents. Both middle yeah. sons of three yeah. boys, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absent father this kind of thing so it was kind of in vogue I suppose it's a little bit different to the philosophy today with raising children the kids were kind of left to look after themselves a bit more in those days Mm. Um, so they uh, managed to make a career out of it yeah well it was extraordinary not just to say okay well we're interested in primal screen therapy let's write a song about it but to Mm. almost I mean I, I remember that album coming out reading the interviews and all that sort of stuff and it was like they were almost disciples of primal scream therapy and you know they're being interviewed by all these pop magazines now, alongside the the adam and the ants interviews and whatever you know there were these guys going on about genovian therapy and neurosis caused by repressed childhood pain and those sorts of things <laughs> yeah it was fascinating but it was it was weird mark you and i were you know 18 19 or so like what 17 18 when that album came out and to me it felt a little bit kind of adolescent not quite as heavy as The Cure and Joy Division and Bands, who I took a bit more seriously. Didn't you feel kind of adolescent at the time? <laughs> Studenty. I was, I was very mature for my age. <laughs> Patrick had moved on by then. But, I mean, I think there was something slightly poppy because it was the two of them. They were a bit synthy. So even though they were talking about very, very serious, proper, you know, it's a very painful album. But, yeah, it did feel fractionally lightweight compared to, you know, the kind of proper post-punk goliaths of that scene. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe, like, obviously they came from graduate. They graduated from graduate, uh, so, yeah. which is where they learned how to play these hooky pop songs. So even though their music on the first album was quite melancholy, there were still these really infectious little melodies everywhere. And it, it was via yeah. those melodies that they became big. Oh, look, it's yeah. a very slick album. It's a very well-produced, coherent album. Yeah. Um, this, 
you know, I've been listening to it a lot recently and I, I liked it at the time a lot and I, and I still enjoy it now. It's um, it's quite short, but um, there's a lot of ideas and you can tell they didn't just come down in the last shower, that's for sure. I think it's an amazing pop album. It's got soul, you know, it's like it's really heartfelt, but it's really snappy as well. And every song is kind of different to the last and it's, you know, mm. a collection of I think 10, is it 10 songs? Yeah. Um, of just like 10 really good pop songs are really interesting as well. Like mm. their use of guitars is really unusual for the early 80s. You know, they were using kind of guitars in quite a guitar-y way, but with lots of synths, drum machines, but it wasn't that kind of overproduced, really plasticky kind of drum machine sound that, that kind of was really in vogue in the year or two after that. Yeah. So, yeah, I really, really like this album. And when did it come out? We should mention. I think it was March 1983. Is that right? Yes. And it was a number one hit in the UK. I don't think it did a great deal in the US, but um, it no, went straight right. to the top of the charts in England. So they were immediately successful with the first album. Um, I must say I really like The Hurting. The track The Hurting has so mm, many ideas yeah. in it. I was going to ask, any favourites from the first album? Well, you have to obviously have the singles. Mad World is impossible to go past, but yeah. um, I would say The Hurting and um, Ideas as Opiates, I think it's a really interesting idea mm. and once again quite unusual for a pop band to be kind of going down these paths in 1982, 83. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think the title track, Mad World, they're my favourites, are Ideas as Opiates. <laughs> which is not a song title that, that uh, Wham were about to come up with. <laughs> well, not until much later anyway. <laughs> no, no, that's right, that's right. Um, they're probably my favourites, Graham. Yeah. Well, um, mine are uh, no surprise. I've written down here Mad World, Pale Shelter, Memories Fade I really like, and they still mm. play that today. Uh, Suffer the Children mm. and Start of the Breakdown. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad track on there, in all honesty. No, it's, no. it's a very good debut album, as I said, and very slick and, and shows, obviously, they know what they're doing in terms of songwriting and, and performance as well. It did cop a bit of a mauling in the music press. I mean, I remember, you know, because they were seen, well, the way that I saw them, and maybe I saw them that way, possibly because the music press told me to see them this way. <laughs> but NME said it was a terrible, useless sort of art that makes self-pity and futility a commercial proposition. That was Gavin Martin from the NME. And As I opposed to the other bands that he liked that did that. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so do we move on to the next album now? Actually, well, there was the transitional era, wasn't there, between the first and the second album? It was the non-album single at the end of 83, yes. which oh, none, yes. of, none of the band, well, none of the members or anyone associated with it seemed to rate uh, the single called yeah. The Way You Are. Everyone seems yep. to kind of hate it. <laughs> yeah, and I'd, yeah, I'd never heard it. Yeah, I think Kurt said it was the worst thing that the band did or has done. And Roland said that after the Hurting album, they got more involved in the home studio, so much so that we forgot about songs. And we attempted making records without songs and then fitting the songs in later to a bunch of interesting sounds. Right. And he said that resulted in The Way You Are. And 
the subsequent single Mother's Talk is a little bit like that as well, where you kind of go, oh, yeah, good sounds, but, you know, whether the songs themselves hold together or not. I was the same as you guys. I'd never heard that song until oh. we started researching this podcast. I mean, it's fine. I, I don't hate it. It's certainly not uh, up there with their, their best songs. It's got a stopgap um, feel to it. I think the record company mm. wanted some product, anything to get put out there, and they went, okay, well, we've got this, and they went fine. I think it's still reached top 40, but yeah, it, was, yeah. um, it was nowhere near the, the quality of the previous singles. And I think Change had got to number four, the single Mad World. I forgot about that Change. That was another another floor filler as well at this particular point. Yeah, yeah. Around about the time Tears for Fears released Change, I think Madonna released Holiday. Mm. And uh, I've always thought that uh, Change was as good as Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and A Pale Shelter was top five as well in the UK. So they were on a real run. Mm. Uh, and then The Way You Are only got to number 24. And then uh, we never heard of uh, Tears for Fears ever again. So they're a worthy addition to the Post-Punk Hall of Fame. Thank you. <laughs> they had a good run. Thanks, yeah, they, had, they had a good run. Yeah. Um, shall we talk about 1985 now, which is a couple of years later, when Songs from the Big Chair looms? Yes, yes. Again, it was predated by a single, as in Shout, which came out four months earlier. So late 84? Uh, yeah, that's right. So just before Do They Know It's Christmas, I think, or around ah. that time, which probably didn't help its prospects of getting to number one. <laughs> um, but uh, I loved Shout when it came out. It was exactly the kind of song, you know, it was a kind of a cry for help. You know, it was like a chorus of, you know, everyone, you know, join together and scream about how the world has done you wrong and what we need to do to kind of set it back on course. Great melody, big sound. Are you talking about uh, Do They Know It's Christmas or...? or... (laughs) Yeah, shout I could take or leave. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to point out that Do They Know It's Christmas actually used a little bit of a sample of Fears for Fears. It samples Uh the title track of The Hurting, uh, sorry, the, uh, the drum shuffle part of The Hurting. It was an early example of a, a bit of sampling there. So I don't think Tears for Fears featured on, on uh, Dear Ben Arrow's Christmas. They were busy at the time. And I don't think they featured on Live Aid either. I, I think, think they were maybe, busy they were, maybe they were supposed to play, but, but they couldn't. Something along those lines. They certainly would have played you know, on the basis of how popular they were at the time. Mm. Mm. This album, second album, was also produced by Chris Hughes, so they thought they'd stick to a good thing um, after the success of the first one. So, um, yeah, what do we think? What's the, what's the plan for um, this album from the boys? <laughs> the Shout Beat, by the way, was, was inspired by a Talking Heads song called Seen and Not Seen, which is on Remain in Light. Oh, I didn't know that. It's not the same as the Shout Beat, but you can see mm. you can kind of mm. put them together. Well, that's a great comparison, but they also uh, used the drums for um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World came from the drums for Waterfront. Uh, Waterfront, Waterfront. Yeah. 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 The 
They weren't afraid to borrow and they weren't afraid to admit to borrowing as well, which which is kind of refreshing. Mm. Well, I think they said, and I think, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but they wanted to be less obscure with this album. They wanted to make their points a bit more clearly, which can translate into a lot of things, but it sounds like they want to have hits and want to, mm. you know, go big, which means going big in America, obviously, which they... Uh, very successfully did do. They were quite happy to admit to wanting to do something commercial. They were trying to do something commercial. You know, they'd been not wanting to do something commercial prior to that point. But yeah, this time around, and it is just an absolutely pristine pop album. It's a really remarkable album, I think. The unsung hero on this album was Ian Stanley, once again, who actually had a hand in writing quite a bit of it. Um, mm. Like The Working Hour was something that he came up with before it became a song. And Ian Stanley was also listening to the soundtrack of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence at the time. Uh, okay. Now, Paddy, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of this. Is, is it Ryoichi Sakamoto? I can't... <laughs> oh, yeah. I like how you pronounced it because that makes you responsible for the pronunciation. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll wear it Look, then. I, I can do a really bad Japanese accent if no, no, you no, want. No, no, no. You don't want me to do that? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'll, I'll let that go then. We have, we have fans in Japan. We have listeners in if Japan. You could, if you can say something racist about Koreans, that would be good too. <laughs> but uh, well, uh, you know, I've got this in my locker if you want. Just let me know. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to say that uh, uh, Ian Stanley was listening to us and he was trying to replicate that sound and uh, the working hour apparently came from uh, the song that Ryuichi Sakamoto did with David Sylvian, which was a a bit of a hit at the time. Ah. But Ah, if you listen to the last song, which is called Listen, I reckon that sounds very much like uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. Mm. The keyboard sounds, it's just, uh, just amazing. I really like that song. This album was huge in America, and mm. I'm going somewhere with this. It was a number one hit album in the States, number two in the UK, didn't quite get to number one. But the, the list of people that have sampled from this album and, and um, been influenced by this album is quite amazing, and it seems to have reverberated with a lot of rappers, mm. which is really mm. quite strange. I don't know why people like Nas um, has sampled it. Kanye West. Another group called Black Delicious. Drake did a song called Lust for Life, which sampled ideas as opiates. In these days, women make offers, and who the hell am I to say? No, no. And The Weeknd, on a song called Secrets, did Pale Shelter. Uh, it's just a strange one. You just wouldn't think it would have kind of had any resonance outside of white radio, well, but it obviously did. So I guess it was so big, mm. these guys couldn't have missed it, you know, if it's on the yeah, radio. Yeah, maybe that's it. It was just everywhere. It was on MTV. It was that era of that sort of thing. I mean, it had five singles, didn't it? Yeah. And they were all mm. kind of fairly big hits. You had Mother's Talk, as Patrick mentioned, Shout, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Head Over Heels. I believe. I mean, that's 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 a lot of singles and a lot of product going out, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. And their songs were getting to number one in the States mm. as well. You know, they weren't sort of like number eight, number nine. They were, you know... Yeah, they were number one singles. Cutting right through. Well, people talk about this album as, as almost the sound, one of the albums of the sound of the 80s. You kind of yeah, remember yeah. these songs if you're alive then as huge hits, whether you like them or not. 
um, it's, yeah. it's hard to deny their impact. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, Roland said we were very lucky that we'd made something accessible that appeared modern, contemporary, left of field. I mean, I don't think it was left of field at all, but to America it was. So we were very popular and very hip. So they were always going to suffer a bit in the UK, you know, courtesy of what Melody Maker and NME and those kind of taste makers were going to say about them. It isn't just one dull commercial song after another. Like it's really well put together. There are kind of weird little instrumental bits that link songs to each other and it's an exceptionally clever album, I think. So, mm. yeah, I, I, think it, I think it's really impressive. Graham, this would have had a big impact on you, this album. Uh, actually, not really, not as much as the first album. I, I liked the singles when they came out. Are you guys familiar with Robert Wyatt? Yes. Yep. Shipbuilding. Yeah. Mm. The Elvis Costello song, Elvis Costello wrote Shipbuilding, and he also produced the first special song. <laughs> <But, laughs> That's um, right. What do we think of the first special song? <laughs> yeah. Message to you, Rudy. Yeah. Robert Wyatt uh, was the singer, had a very high voice. And if you listen to I Believe, you can tell that that's what Roland was listening to at the time. I really like I Believe. I think it's a lovely song. Did Roland sing most of the songs on this album, more of the songs? I think so. There were all sorts of different songwriters. I think Manny Elias, the drummer, might have got a writing credit on one of the songs. Well, he will have yes. bought a house out of that, won't he? Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> one of the weird things about Tears for Fears is it was always kind of presented as the two of them. And on the cover, you know, it's got the kind of famous photo of the two of them. But the inner sleeve credits the band as being the four of them, as in Kurt Rowland, Ian Stanley and uh, Manny Elias on drums. And then there's photos on the other side of five people. So. On one side, they've said there's four people on the band. On the other side, there's photos of five people. They haven't said who the fifth person is, but clearly it's the guy from Ant Rap. The fifth Beatle. So, well, I was going to say Adam Ant is involved. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the uh, producer of the album, which is fair enough. So, Look, if you'd but, been able to prove that Adam Ant was involved in songs from the big chair, that would have been something. Yeah. That's what I was hoping yeah, you were yeah. going to say. Uh, sorry, yeah. Bit of, bit of a letdown not to have a photo of Adam Ant on the inner sleeve. <laughs> no one has noticed in, in the, <laughs> that's right. in that's the subsequent right. years, yes. Hang on, My God, that that's Stuart Goddard. <laughs> Patrick, I think we should discuss just briefly the B-sides of the singles at this time. Yeah, they were very experimental. They showed that they were capable of, they could have kept going in the way of The Hurting, which is not an experimental album as such, but it's a really inventive bunch of songs, which you can hear you know, at the end of the super deluxe version of the album on you know, streaming services and so on. Mm. So they hadn't just run out of ideas, so now they were gonna write commercial songs. Yeah. They were just kind of overflowing with interesting ideas and you know they were sampling from all over the place they sampled from today i died again yeah the simple mind song yeah simple minds song on b-side empire building i think it might be called from the empires and dance yeah they were really absolutely on top of their game you know around 1984, 85, they really couldn't put a foot wrong. Yeah, there's another song called Pharaohs, which um, is, mm. is quite nice. You listen to it and after a while you hear the guitar from Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Uh, oh, yeah. it, it, it comes in. <laughs> like I was listening to it and thinking, God, I know this. Yeah, some really, really inventive stuff, I think. I think also it should be noted that Roland is a really good guitarist, like mm. very proficient as well as mm. 
having some really interesting ideas on both albums. Like I liked what he did and the way he played and the sounds that he used. Mm. And Kurt was actually yeah. a really good bass player. Well, the bass lines are really simple a lot of the times. Like in Change and Pale Shelter, a lot of the time it's just a single note in the verses, but it works, whatever he's doing, and that's yeah. the hallmark of a good bass player. It doesn't have to be busy. He just knows what to play at the right places. If you saw the documentary about songs in the big chair, there's a couple of moments where Chris Hughes was soloing the bass. And um, the bass in Head Over Heels is really nice. It really, it's like Take Me to the River, but there's a lot of um, really great slides up and down the neck. It's uh, like he came up with some really nice lines. Mm. Yeah. Oh, look, it, it still stands the test of time, this album. I don't think there's, it was only eight tracks, I think. It was only quite short, the yeah. original version of it. But I think it was also their downfall in some ways because they ended up having to tour for a long time and sort of being in each other's pockets for a long time after the mega success of this album i think that was kind of hurt them in some ways got they got everything they wanted but it ended up sort of you know sowing sowing the seeds of this <laughs> so subsequent downfall they actually toured australia in 85 around the time mark you and i came to sydney and i we didn't go i think they, were, they probably weren't cool anymore at that point but uh, mm. no uh, i don't remember seeing them that yeah. time i did see them with you maybe 10 or 15 years ago now. Oh, when they supported Spandau Ballet. Spandau Ballet, Ballet yeah. Double Bill. Mm. That's an old old geezer's show right there. <laughs> <laughs> it was good, though. But they were very, very good, actually. I yeah. enjoyed it. You'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger, better pop band in the world in 1985 than Tears for Fears if you're talking about Shout, followed by Everybody Wants to Rule the World, followed by Head Over Heels, which oddly wasn't a big hit in the UK. It didn't even make the top 20 in Australia Got to number three in the US. Mm. For my money, it's almost the kind of most obvious blockbuster hit mm. on the album. Like mm-hmm. it's a, you know, it's a beautiful love song and completely irresistible as well. Although I did try to resist it, <laughs> you know, being the kind of serious young man that I was. So, but where were they going to go next? Where well, could they go next? Have we completed the discussion of... Um... I think so. We won't talk about the third album a great deal because it didn't come out until no. September 89, but it's an interesting no. bookend to yeah. their career yeah. up to that yeah. stage because they yeah. subsequently broke up after the third album. Sorry, if I can take a step back to 1985. Um, <laughs> Roland was interviewed in 1985 about the next album, you know, what it was going to be like. And he said, maybe we'll lay ourselves bare again, leaving ourselves wide open but this time revealing an incredibly hairy chest. <laughs> Which he did. <laughs> Tears of Fears Meets Kiss would have been worth a listen, so it's a bit of a shame that they didn't go, go down that road. Mm. Well, those of us here at CSI Known Pleasures uh, are, are very much aware that 1989 is out of our jurisdiction. Mm, I'm sure there sure. are other podcasts that deal with music after 1985, but, um, <laughs> but we, we, are go- we are going to open the door to Sowing the Seeds of Love. Well, I think we just ha- we can have a discussion about it because it's an interesting album and it's an interesting mm. departure and it's four years later. Mm. Um, I would describe Sowing the Seeds of Love as the apocalypse now of Tears for Fears albums. Oh, really? Um, oh, yes. It cost, over a million, yeah, it cost over a million pounds. They used nine studios, four producers and took three years to record it. And it's really an interesting album, but it is kind of bloated and, and overproduced mm. and it doesn't stand up in the same way as I think the first two. And Roland described wanting to make an album for musicians to love. And I think if you go down that path, you can disappear up your your own ass a little bit. And I think they maybe did that. I don't know. 
there's a little bit of of a sting factor now the kind of album yeah. sting made which were just you know overproduced to within an inch of their lives and they sound they almost sound like they're not really being played by human beings <laughs> you know in a room yeah. well you've got these... full-on session musicians the best of the mm. best it's all done like i said if you're taking that long to do an album with that many studios and producers you're really agonizing over every detail mm. maybe too much mm. um having yeah. said that i mean I, I do like the album i think sowing the seeds the song itself and yep. woman in chains are fantastic songs they're brilliant yep. songs but the album as a whole it kind of didn't hit me in the same way it was a very successful album so what do i know it was big for them wasn't it yeah standing on the corner of the third world is that what it was called yeah that's um, one of the i really like as well There is almost like a, I don't know what you call it, like a jazz funk fusion type thing going on or something. I don't know. It was, it is a little bit kind of ele elevator music-ish occasionally. Um, Look, it has its moments, but I think it was a, a good point for them to finish because after this mm. album, they kind of went their separate ways. Mm. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. Grant? Do you know the uh, musician Stephen Wilson? I've yes. been to see Stephen Wilson play about four times. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes, I'm familiar with <clears throat> He says, uh, in terms of 80s production, it's the very pinnacle for me. He says, yes, there are lots of digital reverb and, yes, there's lots of 80s synthesizers on it, but the songwriting, the craftsmanship, the production, the engineering and the mixing are flawless. So sowing the seeds of love had a really major impact on him. Well, he actually he did a, a remastering of it a few years ago yeah. in whatever it is, 5.1 or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but he is a bit of a prog rock guy, so it would appeal to him. As I said, there are moments on it that I think are fantastic, but I think it was actually a good end for them too. Mm. I think the most extraordinary thing about the album is that it took them four years to make, or they were away for four years making it, and it just had disaster written all over it. Like the pop band, you know, huge in 1985. 1989 was a whole different ball game. Mm. Oh. And who cares what Tears for Fears have come up with? Yeah. And all the kind of tales like the Heaven's Gate film, you know, in the early 80s or late 70s or whatever, which was everyone had said it was going to be a disaster. It was, you know, way over budget or whatever. So it was kind of doomed to failure just because of the kind of bad press beforehand. Yeah. And then this album comes out and it was absolutely massive, mm. which is amazing with like, you know, a six minute single. But I think the album got to number two in the US, Sowing the Seeds, the single got to number one. Mm. But how on earth? Did that happen? But what was a pretty uncompromising album. We haven't mentioned the Beatlesque production and songwriting mm. of Sowing the Seeds of Love. It was clever, like when I listen to it now even, that they listened to I Am The Walrus and a few other things and they just sort of moulded their song using mm. all of these different uh, techniques. And uh, I think it's great. I think looking back on it, history has judged it reasonably well. It, it, it's a good album. It's, it's not a great album, but it's a good album, but it's not the best Tears For Fears album. It's actually the first CD I ever bought, would you believe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, there you are. I do own it. Yeah, a worthy addition to the canon. I think so. A good place to finish for Tears for Fears. Yes. Well, yes. not that they finished completely, but that was the yeah. end of the, the first stage yeah. of their uh, of their career yeah. working together. Well, I would like to um, reference a lyric from the next Tears for Fears album, Elemental, from maybe 1993. 
Mm. Oh, you're uh, well out of order now. <laughs> when, when Kurt had left the band, I've been kicked out of the band, so it was just Roland. And I don't know whether you remember the always healthy glow of our Kurt Smith, but uh, the song Fished Out of Water on the Elemental album was basically Roland doing a bit of a John Lennon on Paul McCartney with a How Do You Sleep. It includes the line, with your high-class friends, you think you've got it made, the only thing you made was that tanned look on your face. Wow. So <laughs> I think I think he accused him of going a bit LA. I think that's what it was all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Because he moved yeah. to the States and had an American, yeah. maybe an American wife too, I'm not even sure. But yeah, he, he went yeah. very LA. And actually, this is a really nice summary of, um, well, maybe the relationship between them at that time. We used to sit and talk about primal scream to exercise our past was our adolescent dream. But now it's sink or swim since your memory fails. Now in Neptune's kitchen, you will be food for killer whales. It's hard to imagine that these guys were going to be touring together again. <laughs> I think we should finish the podcast on that. That, that quote there is fantastic. They did get back together and, you know, tour for, for a decade. They, you know, they did another album together. So it's pretty funny that, that he was going in so hard in 1993. I don't think they spoke for 10 years, though, after yeah, the yeah. third album. That was basically it for, the, for a long yeah. time. Yeah, I think they are unique in that they're, let's stick mainly to, to the first two albums, both almost perfect albums in terms of what they were trying to achieve. Very different, you know, one was the kind of adolescent pain, beautifully evocative of that, and then Songs from the Big Chair, just an immaculate collection of pop songs. And they are an iconic mid-80s, early mid-80s band. So, you know, I think they perfectly achieved exactly what they were attempting to do. I just want to finish up by saying that uh, I think that the the best album was the the first specials album, which was produced by Elvis Costello. Apparently, <laughs> Elvis Costello should produce Scar. That's the song they should have written. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he did. That's a much better yeah. song. And then people would yeah, have gone, yeah. but he did, and he, they would have gone exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs>